I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. If you're visiting with us, we are glad you're here. We, on Sunday mornings, gather to worship the Lord Jesus and the Heavenly Father and His Holy Spirit, the triune God. And we're currently in a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're looking at one a week. And this week we come to the Seventh Commandment. We've learned... Uh, just by way of review, that the Ten Commandments were not given to save us. There's a lot of people that are are, are fuzzy on that. They think that uh, somehow salvation, being accepted by God, is trying to follow the Ten Commandments and they'll be saved. Number one, nobody can follow them. You've violated, got bad news for you, you violated all of them or most of them this week somehow. So have I, in spirit and thought or deed. Secondly, however, They were not given to save us. They were given to those who were already saved, who were already God's people. And the reason they were given is to show the wise path, how to make wise choices that lead to flourishing, that lead to joy and wholeness, how to avoid the destructive path in life. Meaning the Ten Commandments were ultimately given to God's people for their protection, not their salvation, to lead them to joy and to lead them to flourishing. This weekend we come to the seventh commandment. It is verse 14 of Exodus 20. This was originally written in Hebrew. Today's verse is literally only two words in Hebrew. I don't normally preach a text that's only two words in the original text, but this is God's word, and this is a good one. It's five words in most English translations, but only two in the original Hebrew. So we're going to look at three things this morning as we've been doing each week. The what of the command, what exactly is it endorsing or prohibiting? Secondly, we'll look at the why, very important on any of God's commands, to look behind the what and say why. Every one of God's commands has a why behind it, W-H-Y, and reflects something about who God is. Every command is rooted in Him. They're not just... Uh, capricious decrees to make life miserable and challenging. They all flow out of who God is, and they have a reason behind them. Ultimately, that reason is our flourishing. So first of all, we'll dive in. The seventh commandment reminds us about adultery and prohibiting it. We'll look at the what, we'll look at the why, and then we'll look at the how. So first of all, let me just read the standard five words in English translations. Exodus 20, 14, the Word of God says, you shall not commit adultery. This same list, by the way, is in Deuteronomy 5. That was the second giving of the law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means, the second giving of the law. That was a new generation that had grown up, risen up, and so God regave his law and specifically the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery, as the old King James says. Some of you know in 1850 that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote his famous or infamous novel, The Scarlet Letter. I read it several years ago. Story of a woman who had a child out of wedlock, and it's a story of adultery in colonial America, and reminds us how scandalous it was for someone to commit adultery. Now, whether you agree with it, all of it or not, she was made to stand on a platform on scaffolding to be publicly shamed, and then she had to wear a scarlet A on her clothing for the rest of her life. Uh, But a a lot different than today, 
when we had two anchors recently on Good Morning America caught in adultery, and they sort of laughed the whole thing off. One thing history has taught us, lots of things history has taught us, but when it comes to something like this, something history has taught us is that some sins never change generation to generation, century after century. Classic example of that very principle was uncovered by a really good church historian, Dr. Scott Manich. Uh, Dr. Manich wrote a book a couple years ago, The Company of the Pastors. What it's about was pastoral ministry in 16th century Geneva, Switzerland, large thriving city. And he did something very interesting over a series of sabbaticals. He went there and he looked specifically at the records of church discipline and the kinds of sins that were disciplined over a period of 60-some years. You might say, well, how do you find that? Well, amazingly enough, there's still 38 volumes of church board minutes <laughs> that exist from the years 1542 to 1609. So you have 38 volumes of what are called consistory minutes that still exist. And so he spent several sabbaticals sifting through all of this over those six plus decades. And what he discovered was there were 1,572 recorded cases of church discipline still on record by name. And there were at least 20 categories of sins people were disciplined for. Now, again, unrepentant sin for the most part but 20 categories of sins that were disciplined just in one city in Geneva during the 16th century. And um, some of the sins, I mean, there's a whole list of them that he uncovered, but uh, gambling, gossip, violating the Sabbath, uh, stealing, lying, divorce, there was a number of them over 20 categories, but of the 20 categories of sin, two types of sin rose to the top, easily, he said, in just sheer numbers, and that was household conflict and sexual sin were the two most types of sin disciplined in 16th century Geneva. Just one city, just one century. Bible's clear, ladies and gentlemen, young people, if you're here today and you're a young person, you're a kid, teenager, young adult, really glad you're here. The Bible says, look, God created man and woman. He set up his universe, and he created the sexual relationship between a man and a woman as a beautiful gift to be used inside of heterosexual marriage. I need to add the word heterosexual these days because God does not recognize what we would call homosexual marriage. It's not a marriage in the eyes of God. Only a heterosexual marriage, a man and a woman, a biological man, biological woman. So the what of the seventh commandment is simply this, it reinforces that. That once a man and a woman are united in marriage, they are never to violate the sexual boundaries of that, never to have sex with somebody else. We're also forbidden to have sex with anybody else prior to marriage. The Bible's very clear. But once we are in a marriage and become one flesh with someone, we are never to step outside those boundaries. And if we do, the Bible calls it adultery. Now, it's not a word we use a lot today. But it, that's the biblical word. The, the, in fact, the Hebrew word Moses uses for adultery is very specific. And it speaks to the clear nature of it being sexual sin. And as such, the Bible speaks to adultery as something that God will judge. For example, Hebrews 13, 4, the word of God says, Marriage should be honored by all, 
and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Interesting note as I was doing research for this sermon, go back to the 1960s and 70s, you will discover a very deliberate effort to replace the word adultery with other phrases. Uh, most common, uh, an extramarital affair, or even worse, a fling. Some of you have heard the slang, a fling. Friends, here, here's the danger. Young people hear this. The moment you take away a biblical word that issues a moral verdict like adultery and replace it with softer language, you are then minimalizing that sin. All you're doing at that point is moral evasion. And when we use softer language, we would normally call that in English a euphemism. Uh, what, what, what happens when we start using euphemisms for sin is that we are, intentionally or not, helping to normalize evil. That's exactly what you do when you play language games. Lots of people throughout history have tried to soften what they're doing by changing the name, changing the words. But when you change words, you change reality. And as one law professor put it a couple years ago, he said the trajectory, this, I thought this was very insightful, the trajectory of moral decline in a culture always moves from condemnation to euphemism to acceptance. And that fits a lot of context. You think even of the Nazis and what they did in relabeling pretty much everything about the final experiment, the final solution, which was murdering people. They changed the wording about it. And when you look at moral trajectory and moral decline, uh, as we're seeing in Western culture, it always moves from condemnation, those were things that were condemned, then evolves into euphemisms, and then evolves into well, toleration of it and acceptance of it. The same pattern occurs throughout history. So the bottom line of the what this morning is that Genesis tells us the fascinating story. Go back to Genesis, which we're going to do in a minute. The book of down. this may shock you. Some people come to church. Anytime I preach on marriage and sexuality, I have people that have all kinds of reactions, but one of them always is, I can't believe you said that in the pulpit. I also have had many over the years come to me and say, thank you for saying that in the pulpit. Because our culture is crying out for a clear word about sex and sexuality, and they're not getting it in the public square. We're getting all kinds of crazy stuff and destructive stuff and misinformation and attacks on what God has said. But the people of God and the culture at large are screaming out for a clear word from God about this wonderful gift God has given. And Genesis is telling us, headline story, sexual pleasure is something God thought up. It's his invention. It wasn't something the devil thought up. It was something God thought up. And it is so beautiful, and it is so holy within the boundaries of a covenant heterosexual marriage. That is the original blueprint. That is the original design. And the what of this commandment is that that one flesh union is never to be broken. All right, let's go to the why this morning. Why did God give this commandment? And you could go a number of directions with the why. I chose today to go the direction of 
Let's look at God's intention for marriage and why it is such a high and holy thing. So to understand the why this morning, here's my argument. We have to come to grips with God's high view of marriage. That's something that needs to be regularly repeated, I think, in the pulpits and classrooms of our churches. So I'm going to take you to three texts this morning. I hope you brought a Bible. We use our Bibles here. Or you have it on a tablet or something. And if you're on your phone, I hope you're not texting, but you're looking at God's Word and paying attention. Uh, but I want to go to three texts that talk about God's high view of marriage that will highlight why the seventh commandment is put there in the first place. So first of all, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to do a little Bible study. If you are visiting with us, you should know that we believe the Bible is the Word of God and that every word was breathed out from God. There's a lot of churches today, sadly, that don't believe that. I grew up in a denomination, in a church that did not believe that. There are actually churches out there where pastors get up and attack the Word of God, which is shocking, but that's true. But here today, we believe that this is the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant Word of God, that it's breathed out in the original languages by God in Hebrew, Aramaic, in the Old Testament, in Koine Greek, in the New Testament. And here we come to the initial blueprints for marriage. This is a foundational text. Young people, if you're here this morning, this is ground zero for understanding what God created in the beginning when it comes to marriage. Genesis 2, verses 21 to 25. For some of us, this is familiar territory. For some of us, this is brand new terrain. Either way, here's what the Word of God says. Genesis 2, verse 21, 25. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to, uh, to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right, a key thought here. I'm going to give you a word. It's not found in the Hebrew text, not even found in the English text, but I'm going to give you a word here. The key thought coming from that section I just read might be the word complementarity. Probably not a word you use very often. Not, it comes from our English word complement, not compliment. Compliment is when you say to somebody, I like your shirt or you got a nice looking hairdo or something like that. That's, that's a different word, compliment. Complement, M-E-N-T. There's only one vowel difference between the two words. Complement, compliment. Complement is a completely different English word. And it's interesting, both the word complete and the English word complement come from the Latin word complere. Complere. And it means literally to complete or to finish or to harmonize or to uh, balance something out. And so if you look at verse 23, in the Hebrew text, we're told that the woman, Hebrew word isha, will be taken out of the man, Hebrew word ish, so the isha is taken from the ish, meaning Adam and Eve were literally created for one another. 
They were designed to complement one another, complete one another. That's the design. And it's only by understanding God's design for complementarity does monogamy have any inherent logic to it. Only through this understanding of complementarity does monogamy have any coherent logic. You see, many today claim something like this. You've heard this claim. Well, marriage can be any arrangement between two people who love each other, right? You've heard that. It's a common phrase today. Biblically, we need to step back and ask the question, why two? Why a man and a woman? And culturally, unless you have an authority like the Bible, you really don't have an answer for that. We have an answer because that is the original design. The reason, too, because that's the way God intended it. The reason male and female, that's the way God designed it. And the answer, that's God's blueprint from the beginning. That is the natural order of things. There's a moral order in the universe. God set it up. We did not. And he said, this is the way I set it up. And so in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, you actually have Paul talking about those who indulge in homosexual behavior are going against nature, against creation. Why? Because of Genesis and the blueprint here, the natural order. So Genesis 2 is our first text, complementarity. The man, the woman, the Isha, and the Ish were designed, and they were designed to complement and complete each other. Next text I want to go to two others that are foundational. Matthew chapter 19. We move from the words of Moses now to the words of Jesus. Matthew 19 verses 3 to 10. Some of you have heard of the Pharisees. This was a group that originally was a very good group. They arose in between the Old and New Testament as a group of religious leaders that called people back to the law of God and said, look it, we've abandoned what God has called us to do. And they called people back to holiness. Unfortunately, over the years, they turned into very self-righteous, grumpy, legalistic referees that ran around throwing penalty flags on everybody. That's why nobody liked them. But here, we have a situation in which some of the Pharisees are playing gotcha. You ever have somebody play gotcha with you? You know, they're trying, to, they're trying to trip you up. That's what they're doing here. They're playing a game of gotcha with Jesus in Matthew 19. And we're going to pick up the story in verses 3 down to verse 10. And as we do, I want to point out a couple of things. Because Jesus here is upholding the biblical blueprint from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Some Pharisees came to him and said, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus' response. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. Where is he quoting from? Where is he quoting from? Genesis. He went right, he made a beeline right back to Genesis, to the blueprints. Verse 5. And he goes on, and he said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's a direct quote from Genesis 2, verse 24. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Language, by the way, lifted out and put right in the Book of Common Prayer. That's where we get some of our language for traditional wedding verbiage. 
Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. Got to give it to Jesus. He never mints words. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone anyone who divorces his wife except for porneia, it says in the original Greeks, which is a broad word for sexual immorality. It's broader than just adultery. It would cover premarital sex. It would cover uh, things like adultery, homosexual behavior, even bestiality, any kind of sexual sin. Porneia was a broad word. We get our English word pornography from it. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus is saying when you're bound together as one flesh, if one of you leaves that one flesh union, that person commits adultery because the assumption is they will end up getting remarried. That was the assumption, obviously, in the first culture. The disciples said to him then, now notice this, the disciples are shocked by Jesus' standard for marriage. The disciples said, well, if this is the situation between a man and a wife, it's better not to get married. I mean, they, they were realizing exactly what Jesus said. He put the bar so high, basically saying, once you're married, you're in a one flesh union and there's no way out unless one of them commits sexual sin. But other than that, Jesus is saying, there's no way out here. And, that, and so the disciples are shocked at his standard. So think about it. If God's standard for marriage was a shock in, the fir- in first century Palestine, conservative Jewish Palestine, if that was a shock, how much more today is God's standard for marriage an absolute jolt in the public square today and even increasingly in a lot of churches? Look at the main idol of American culture is self. Me, myself, and I, the new trinity. (laughs) That's the main idol of the day. And the highest value in, in Western culture is personal freedom. And the destructive lie that comes from our media and our music from singers like Nika, who has a song called My Body, My Choice, which is absolutely demonic. She says, you can't dim my voice. I'm going to keep making noise till you understand it's my body, my choice. That's the thinking of hell. Because God created us, we do not belong to ourselves. And God gave us a moral code, and he says, you will thrive with this, you, you deny this, you will destroy yourself. So Jesus' standard here is very high. Even his disciples are shocked. All right, the third passage. Last passage we're going to look at, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. There's obviously other passages we could go to, but these are three mountain peaks when it comes to God's view of marriage, and we ignore them to our own detriment. Genesis 2. Matthew 19, and now Ephesians 5. First one from Moses, second one from Jesus, this one from the Apostle Paul, from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 25, and then 31 to 32. And I want to ask you before I read this, notice where Paul is going to in these verses. So this is the Apostle Paul letter he wrote to the church at Ephesus, which is in modern-day western Turkey. This is the word of God. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And drop down to verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Where have we heard that? Genesis 2.24, the same passage Jesus quoted. That's why I'm showing you, connecting the dots here. Jesus went to Genesis. Paul goes to Genesis. The two will become one flesh. Paul goes on, verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, Paul, this is something new Paul is adding. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Husbands are never commanded to submit to their wives. Wives are commanded to submit. The, the, the command to husbands is to love and treasure your bride and to lead and love her. So, again, Paul goes back to Genesis. God designed it for a Christian husband and wife to come together so that their marriage, here he says, actually is doing, it's pointing to something. The Christian marriage is pointing to the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the key here. I mean, that's the theological key to understand this passage. His argument is based on the unique differences of a man and a woman. So as the man loves and leads and sacrifices, he's behaving like Christ, loves and leads and sacrifices. And the wife, as she submits and respects, is behaving then like the church. And you, you, here's what you can't do. You cannot substitute two men or two women into the logic of Ephesians 5 and get the same mystery. You can't do it. God's design is that the sexual union of the husband and wife reflects the mystery and beauty of the gospel. That's what's going on here. That's the logic that the Holy Spirit led Paul to as he wrote this. Now, once you have these three key texts, you gain a much better understanding of why the seventh commandment was given, that we're never to break the one flesh union. It's so critical. God designed, I'm going to circle back and say this again, kids, young people, adults, <clears throat> God designed it that human sexuality is a beautiful, holy, mysterious gift given to a husband and a wife, to unite them for life. And the logic of the seventh commandment then would then render every kind of adultery, premarital sex, bestiality, prostitution, or homosexuality as a violation of God's design. So the bottom line of the seventh commandment, it's there for our protection. God didn't give us the seventh commandment to kibosh pleasure. He's the one that dreamed it up. Sexual pleasure is his idea. He says, though, if it's used outside the proper channels, it is so powerful, it is deadly. Just like electricity. As long as it's flowing in the designed channel it's supposed to be in, very powerful, very helpful. You get electricity outside that particular zone, and it becomes lethal and deadly. And so that is why the Bible is so clear about God's judgment on sexual sin. Proverbs 6.32 
speaks to adultery in particular, whoever commits adultery has no sense. And whoever does so destroys themselves. Friends, that's strong language. So ultimately the reason that sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage is so wrong is because sexual activity within heterosexual marriage is so right. Sexual intimacy is a powerful, holy, majestic, glorious, amazing, mysterious gift. That's God's view of human sexuality. A beautiful gift given to a husband and a wife. All right, let's come to the how of the command. For this, we're going to turn to Matthew 5. Like the sixth commandment, Jesus took the seventh commandment in the Sermon on the Mount and actually talked about, well, there's more than one way to commit adultery. Just like he did last week. There's more than one way to commit murder. Last week we saw that it's not just the physical act of killing somebody, but you can murder them in your heart by hatred and bitterness towards somebody. And Jesus said that will be judged. And here he's saying there's more than one way to commit adultery. Now, what it, what it, what it means and does not mean, doesn't mean all sin is equal. The Bible does never say that. But nonetheless, sin is evil. And the sin that leads to adultery, Jesus is going to target here, is especially pernicious. It's the sin of lust. And so, starting in verse 27, Matthew 5, we're in the Sermon on the Mount here, very famous. Jesus is showing us that God demands not only compliance to the external law, don't commit adultery, actual adultery, but also Jesus is saying, but when you lust in your heart, you've already crossed over the line of sin. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, meaning beyond their spouse, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. By the, word, by the way, the word hell there in English is the Greek word Gehenna. You ask, well, what's Gehenna? Gehenna. It was a big uh, valley right outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. It's, it's still there. It's just not used for this purpose anymore. It was a big valley right outside of Jerusalem, right outside the city center, where they would burn uh, garbage and burn stuff, even the, the corpses of uh, unidentified people or prisoners. Uh, everything was kind of thrown into the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, and then it would just, everybody knew of it. It was a smoldering, stinking valley right next to central Jerusalem. The wind was blowing the wrong way. You knew about Gehenna. Nobody liked it, and Jesus would point to Gehenna. And say, that's where judgment will occur. That's where you will end up. Not just in that smoldering dump, but he uses his metaphor, a picture of what hell would be. Today, it's a very peaceful valley. Becky and I have actually walked <laughs> through the central valley, right down through the middle of Gehenna today. It's a very quiet area. But that's what the word hell comes from here. It's actually the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna. So Jesus is saying that uh, you know, if you do this, you will end up in Gehenna, verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to get thrown into Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, I can't end this 
part of the sermon without mentioning pornography. Uh, pornography is as old as the world. It's been going on for as long as mankind's been around. But obviously it changes, and it changes based on technology and advances like that, and specifically today with the internet and smartphone, it is so prevalent. Odds are very high. Numbers of us here this morning are even involved with it right now. I cannot stress enough how dangerous it is. And it's a growing problem with young girls and teenage girls. It's a growing problem. Many are getting trapped by it, and it's incredibly addictive. And young men especially. And so I say to you, young men, young women, but all of us, that's where the sin of adultery begins. The sin of lust, which is fueled by pornography, which is extremely addictive and very dangerous. And it's never enough. What gave a thrill yesterday isn't enough for, you know, today and tomorrow. And once we enter the world of pornography, we are entering a very dark world of sexual entrapment and sexual sin. And so as strongly as I can plead with you today as a pastor, if you are indulging in or dabbling in or playing it all with pornography, flee like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife, flee, because if you don't hear the warning from God's word, it will lead to lots of places, and they are all bad. It will lead over the cliff. You may lose your reputation. You may lose your health. You may lose your spouse. You may lose your rep. I mean, all sorts of things could happen. All of them are bad, and pornography is so rampant today, it is deadly, and so it's I plead with you to stop, get help, get an accountability partner, talk to a pastor, talk to somebody you respect, a mentor, because you're playing with fire. You're playing with fire, and it will burn. All right, a couple summons this morning as we get ready to land the plane. What is, what is today's commandment calling us to do? So let me draw your attention to four things. Four things. Number one, if you have sinned sexually, and numbers of us in here have, there is forgiveness and healing in the gospel. You need to know that. You need to know that. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, I love this verse, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Man, I need that for all my sin. There's the verse. The Bible says if we will turn from our sin and trust Jesus as Savior, there is forgiveness whether you're coming to Christ for the very first time as Savior, that's how you get saved. That's how you get rescued from hell and judgment is to turn from your sin, confess your sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bible says you'll be saved. Or whether you're coming back to Christ, we're a Christian. I mean, I mean you, you gave your life to Christ, you professed him, and then you went into sexual sin and you're coming back for forgiveness. But either way, if you're involved in sexual sin, there's healing and there's forgiveness in the gospel. I want, and it's very important we say that. Secondly, if you're married here this morning, lots of us are, Bible commands us to work at and celebrate sexual intimacy in our marriage. But you never thought you'd hear that in a pulpit. But that's a command from God. 1 Corinthians 7 calls on husbands and wives to invest in their sexual relationship and not deprive each other. Far too many married couples settle for very routine sex life. Friend, I think it's a sin. That's not what God had designed. 
Sexual intimacy is, is a precious gift to be celebrated by a husband and wife. I, I, a book I would highly recommend, Kevin Lehman's book, Sheet Music. We use it in um, premarital counseling a lot, but even marriage counseling. But the issue here is that a, hear this, a healthy sexual life between a husband and a wife does wonders physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, and evangelistically. It is one of the best evangelistic tools to show to a lost culture, here's the gospel on display in the love, holy love, between a man and a woman. Thirdly, if we have kids at home, grandkids we have access to, we need to be teaching our children and grandchildren about God's great design for sex. Moms and dads, you need to be discipling your kids and not letting the culture destroy them with all of its toxic misinformation out there. It's destructive. We need to explain to our children and teach them, obviously, when age appropriate, but we need to be teaching them what God's design for marriage is, what it's not, why the commands are there, and they're there for our protection. And I can't urge you strong enough, don't just hope they catch this. Don't just hope they hear this somehow. You be intentional. You do the Deuteronomy 6 thing. You take them aside. You go to the Word of God with them, and you show them and talk about yourself. If you committed sexual sin, be honest with them. Tell them about what you did and the, some of the things that have happened and why God gave these and how you sought forgiveness and restoration and why God wants them to flourish in marriage. That is, that is a command on every parent. Lastly this morning, this is for all of us. The best way to fight sexual temptation is with God's promises. It is the most effective, proved tool. What do I mean? This means, I'm going to put this in very practical terms, very practical terms. The next time you're tempted sexually, the next time I'm tempted sexually, the very best thing I can do to neutralize it like a, like a dart is to go to Scripture, take a verse, and recite it and pray it. So, for instance, next time, say, a young girl is tempted to have sex with her boyfriend, or, or you're tempted to look at pornography, any of us. Or you're trying to decide, should I stay faithful to my spouse or not? And the temptations are coming. Chew on a verse like Philippians 4, 8, and 9, that if I think about what's pure, I will have peace with God. Or meditate on Psalm 84, 11, God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Or, do, or, or dwell on Matthew 5, 8. I love this one. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Those are the ones who see God. You want to see God? You want to feel God? You want to have his presence and his peace? That's how you do it. And here's what happens when you chew on promises, gospel promises in the Bible. As you chew on God's promises, as you chew on a verse, as you begin to pray over a verse and recite it throughout the day, what happens is God's word cuts through the fog and deception of sexual sin, of any temptation for that matter. And what God's word does is it starts to quiet us down. And helps us to think clearly again and find fresh hope and the pathway to joy begins to become evident once again. That's what happens when you start chewing on the Word of God. That's how it's designed. Why? Because it's the very words of God infused with the power of God to change the people of God. And chewing on His Word is the best way to counteract sexual sin. I want to conclude by going back to what was used for scripture reading this morning by Mark Colby, Psalm 51. 
If you've committed sexual sin and you're ready to repent, or hopefully you're thinking about it, maybe the sermon has convicted you, I want to take you back to Psalm 51, just to one paragraph. Here's your template. Here's your reminder. Hear this from your pastor. Sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. I think that needs to be said more often in Bible-preaching churches. It is a deadly sin. And you look at the life of King David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, there was a downward trajectory in a number of areas in his life. There are consequences to forgiven sin. But it's not the unforgivable sin. And there is hope and there is forgiveness and there is healing in repentance and coming back to Christ. And David's words are a marvelous blueprint for that. So, I'm going to read one paragraph as we close from David's incredible prayer of confession after he committed adultery in Psalm 51. Hear this. Hold, all of us hear this anytime we sin, but especially this morning. If you've been convicted and there's sexual sin that you need to do, deal with, here is the wording. Here is the heart cry. And I would urge you to take Psalm 51 and pray it and pour out your heart to God on your knees. David cried out after committing adultery in repentance, quote, Have mercy on me, O God. Please wipe away my sin. Wash me clean from all my sin and guilt. I know about my sins, and I cannot forget about my terrible guilt. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then church, hear these words. I love this last sentence. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not turn away from. You will not turn away from. Father, we are thankful for the Ten Commandments. Because, Lord, we know they're not really a list of just do not. They're actually a list of here's how to thrive. Here's how to protect and walk on the wise path. I pray for those today here entrapped in sexual sin. I pray for young people entrapped in pornography. Both girls and boys, both young women and young men, and even those of us older who might be ensnared in pornography. Sexual sin homosexual behavior, adultery, premarital sex. Father, if we don't leave that road, we will destroy ourselves. And your judgment will be on us. Show us the way out of the swamp. Show us back to repentance. And the beauty of forgiveness as David cried out and restore our joy in the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your prohibitions. Just like we've said Guardrails on a mountain highway, they're there not to limit us, but to protect us. May we see them that way and rejoice. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty, holy name.